0: I'm Ron Cass, I'm Dean Emeritus of Boston University and chair of the Federal Society's uh, International Law Practice Group, delighted to see you all here. Uh, as my wife and I were waiting in an airport the other day, we heard a discussion between two people who were standing in line. Uh, one did the usual presentries, you know, hi, how you doing, where are you from, I'm from Maine, where are you from, I'm from Texas. What do you do? I'm a farmer. What do you do? I'm a rancher. And they, they got to talking. Obviously, the agricultural bonding was very thick. And at one point, the Texan asked the farmer from Maine how big his farm was. And the uh, the fellow from Maine thought a minute and he said, Well, if I get up in the morning and I walk for about an hour, and then turn and walk about another hour, and then turn and walk another hour, turn one more time, walk back. Uh, I, I get around the outside of my property, and then he turned to the Texan and said, "How big is your ranch?" The Texan said, "If I get in my car first thing in the morning, drive as fast as I can for about four hours, turn, drive as fast as I can for four hours, turn, do it again. After about 16 hours, I can get back where I started." A fellow from Maine shook his head, said, "Yeah, I had a car like that once myself." <laughs> America is not only a country that is large and diverse with people who have uh, different views and different uh, attitudes in different parts of the country. That also is a metaphor for the difference between us and other parts of the world as many people see it, with the United States being Texas and Europe being Maine. There is a, a lively debate about how we're seen and how we see ourselves. We're going to talk on this panel about whether America is different from other Western democracies. There are two threads that have always run through discussions of America. One is a thread of exceptionalism, of what's different about America. Uh, This goes back uh, beyond the uh, first uh, founding of the country to the earliest exploration by Europeans of America. But it was given perhaps its best exposition by Alexis de Tocqueville, a Frenchman who came for a vacation, toured the country, and wrote a book about America that explained how different we were from other places, how special America was, a land that was especially rich in resources, with a population that was diverse and optimistic, with people who were particularly religious, particularly given to respect for and deference to the law, Since uh, de Tocqueville's writing, a number of other people have had things to say about American exceptionalism, about how different we are, about our peculiar reverence for God and the Constitution, about our religiosity, about our violence, about our individualism. De Gaulle once commented on the difference between America and France by saying they were almost opposites. He said, France is a country with one religion, and 400 cheeses. America is a country with one cheese and 400 religions. (laughs) The other thread is, of course, a thread of similarity. There are people who see in America our European heritage, our debt to Montesquieu, to the British organization of government, to other thinkers, to the foundations of culture, of literature, of art that we bring with us as we come to this country. While it's said that you can move to Japan but not become Japanese, you can move to France but not become French, you can move to America and immediately become an American, it's also said that when you come here from France or Italy or England or Germany, you bring with you your heritage and make it part of this country, part of our fabric, and that our similarities with other Western democracies, dominate our differences. Certainly, when we are attacked, we turn to our allies and they stand with us. And when they are attacked, they turn to us and we stand with them. The question really is that we're going to be talking about this afternoon, which of those threads is more prominent? Which better explains the relationship between America and other Western democracies? And we have assembled today a panel of people who are peculiarly able to talk about these topics. Uh, I will explain this is an all Boston University panel uh, because not only am I Dean Emeritus of Boston University, uh, Graham Wilson is a faculty member there, Randy Barnett uh, was a faculty member uh, there for many years, Jim Lindgren uh, talked at BU uh, often enough to earn visiting faculty status, and Bruce Stokes has both a B and a U in his first name. Um, (laughs) And, and his wife graduated from Boston University. Thank you, Bruce. Uh, I, I will ac- actually say a, a couple more words about them in the order in which they'll be speaking. Uh, Bruce Stokes is a commentator for the National Journal. He has written a book called America Against the World. He is a fellow at the German Marshall Fund. He is also a consultant of Pew Research Center, a former fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, and really an expert on U.S.-EU relations and U.S.-Asia relations. He is well known in political science, foreign policy, and legal circles. Graham Wilson is a professor of political science at Boston University, where his wife is now dean, uh, and I gave him my condolences uh, on that. Uh, Graham had been a professor at the University of Wisconsin, the University of Essex. He's a specialist on comparative public policy studies, and a very familiar figure to people who do political science on both sides of the Atlantic. Randy Barnett, uh, after being a professor at Chicago, Kent, and to my delight at Boston University, is now a professor at Georgetown. He is a, a scholar of both contracts law and constitutional law. He is widely published and widely quoted and is well-known to members of the Federal Society. Jim Lindgren, also well-known to members of the Federalist Society, is a professor at Northwestern University School of Law. He is a, a real rarity among US legal academics. He is not only not afraid of numbers, he takes them seriously, he works with them, he uses statistics to do legal analysis, and he even asks probing questions through statistics like how do we know that law faculties are liberal. And the answer to that is not, duh. It is, (laughs) although I did once debate at a Federalist Society debate, I actually debated that topic with someone in a law school on the the West Coast, one of the few places where that would be a serious question for them. Um, They actually pointed out they had a conservative on their faculty. (laughs) Enough said. They will be speaking in that order. Uh, please give them your attention, and thank you for being here.
1: Way.
2: If it's okay with everyone, I'll just sit here, but if uh, that's fine. Uh, thank you, Ron. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, as Ron uh, mentioned, uh, the, the data I'm going to use, and I'm going to do kind of the broad overview of this panel, Uh, is based on uh, the Pew Global Attitude Survey, which take place every year, 45 countries, about 45,000 people around the world. Uh, And that formed the basis of the book that Andy Kohat and I wrote called America Against the World that tried to look at American exceptionalism, American values, and what roles those play in the anti-Americanism we see all over the world. And while I'm not going to talk about anti-Americanism, the thrust of the book was to look at American exceptionalism and to what extent there were certain values that were inherently American and we they are different from other uh, values, especially in Western Europe. And there's not a whole lot we can do about them. They're just differences and if they cause us problems, we have to live with it. There are also sets of values we identified that we thought were changeable over time. They kind of waxed and waned and maybe uh, different administrations, different eras in history could uh, deal with those. And then there were some values that were misunderstood. So we'll talk about, uh, about all of those Uh, The answer to the question, is America different, I think, is Ron's, to quote Ron, "Da, of course we are. Uh, The question is, uh, how does it matter, uh, and is there anything that we can do about it? Or should we want to do anything about it? Uh, Americans, as uh, Rudy Giuliani said in the previous uh, session, uh, are optimistic people uh, by nature. Uh, This is a question we ask uh, every so often, do you think life's going to be better in the next five years? Uh, Americans tend to be more optimistic than uh, folks in Western Europe. In answer to that question, Um, we are also, it's interesting if you apply that to various topics, we also ask Americans uh, what they thought about the future, what would happen in the future. And everybody, it was remarkable how pessimistic people were about things that could happen in the future. There's going to be plagues, there's going to be economic recession, there's going to be global warming. But oh, by the way, we'll overcome it. There's a faith that Americans have that whatever the challenges we face, we can overcome them. Uh, Now, that faith is linked intimately to technology. Somebody will come up with some technology that will solve the problem. But the point is, we uh, tend to, uh, even when we believe that there are things that are going to go wrong in the future, our history, I think, has taught us uh, to be optimistic. We are also uh, remarkably patriotic compared to Europeans. note that we are dramatically more patriotic than the French, which actually surprised me. Um, But we are. And and look how much more patriotic we are than the Germans. There may be some historical explanation for the Germans not wanting to say they're patriotic. Uh, But uh, we are. I would say we are more patriotic than I expected us to be. We are also individualistic. That should come as no surprise to folks in the Federalist Society. Uh, This is an answer to our question, is success in life determined by forces outside our control or is success in life under our own control? And basically, Americans think that success in life is determined by what we do for ourselves. Uh, Folks in Europe tend to believe that it's forces beyond uh, their control. So it's a fundamental difference. Uh, And what's interesting about this, I don't have the historical data up there, that we asked this question in 1990, uh, right at the time of the changes in Europe. We asked it again in 2002 and then in 2007. And between 1990 and 2002, there was a a narrowing of the differences across the Atlantic. We thought, oh, the Europeans are becoming more like the Americans on this issue. Isn't that interesting? In fact, it's widened again in the last five years. So there uh, there seems to be definite uh, differences here about fate, basically. Uh, we oppose the state helping those who can't help themselves. Um, uh, The question was, should the state take care of the very poor who cannot take care of themselves? Uh, And even though there's that phrase in there, can't take care of themselves, we still believe the state does not have a role uh, in uh, uh, taking uh, care of uh, these folks, whereas folks in Europe tend to believe that. Again, it's what you'd expect, I think, Uh, as a difference between America and uh, Europeans. Uh, We are firm believers in markets, as you might imagine, Uh, although I I would point out to you it's not as stark as we might believe. Uh, Notice that the Swedes are more deeply committed to markets than we are. You know, our image of the Swedes are these Scandinavian social democrats or socialists and uh, totally unlike us. In fact, the Swedes, by our surveys, uh, are they believe more in markets than we do. They are as individualistic as we are, and they are as critical of government as we are. So there, there are some interesting uh, twists here in the data uh, that bear watching. But clearly, uh, this would, again, reaffirm our, our beliefs that we are more committed to the markets uh, than, than Europeans. We are wary of government. Sixty-five uh, percent believe the government controls too much of our daily lives, this, though, again, is a bit surprising. We are not that different from the Europeans. The Europeans believe the same thing. Now, one would argue they've had more experience with this than we have. Uh, but it is interesting uh, that we more or less all share this view, that government controls too much of our lives. Uh, one of the issues that we uh, looked into in the Pew survey was religiosity, because what was interesting is we found, surprisingly, one of the great drivers of anti-Americanism in both Europe and in the Muslim world is perceptions of our religiosity. Uh, the Muslims think we're not religious enough. The Europeans think we're too religious. And in both cases, those drive people's attitudes towards America and make them more anti-American. So we looked into this fairly deeply. We, uh, This is actually World Values Survey data. Uh, we, uh, uh, Virtually all Americans believe in God, basically. Uh, and uh, it's a stronger uh, of, set of beliefs than uh, you find in most of the rest of Europe. We do have this interesting uh, set of beliefs in the United States. We believe it's necessary to believe in God to be moral. Uh, as you can see, none of the Europeans <laughs> believe that. Uh, we actually look a lot like Muslims in, this, uh, in response to this question. We both believe you, ha- you have to believe in God to be moral. Uh, the secular Europeans do not. Uh, We are less committed to the separation of church and state than I think we want to believe ourselves to be. This is one of the self-image questions that that came out of this survey, which I found most fascinating. Only about half of Americans believe in the separation of church and state. Europeans are much clearer on this issue. And in fact, if you look at the historical data on this question, it goes up and down in the United States. Um, and uh, it, it is depending on the, on, the, on the era, for example, in the 60s, the height of the civil rights movement, when the church was very much involved in that, uh, uh, people didn't believe in separated churches at all. Uh, uh, and so it is, um, it is an interesting commentary on, on our beliefs, our self-image versus what we say we actually believe. Uh, and finally, just to give you a sense of some of the social issues, we didn't ask an abortion question, by the way. Uh, homosexuality should be accepted. Uh, we we have strong differences with uh, with the Europeans on this issue. Uh, there's a real values difference on that issue. Um, so that's the Oost-Broad overview. I think uh, Graham's going to go into some more detail here, so I'll turn it over to Graham. Thank you very
3: much.
2: Keep, keep going, at yeah. Well. Yeah.
3: Keep going at it will. Well, <laughs> okay. Well, that's 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 very good advice for life in general, isn't it? Keep going, and it will. Yeah. Uh, but first of all, I'd like to thank all of you for inviting me, not only to have the opportunity to speak to you, but to hear such marvelous, interesting presentations and panels. Uh, as you can tell from my accent, I come from a very distant eastern state, uh, <laughs> very eastern state indeed. And uh, until the chairman's remarks, I thought I was going to have the great fun of accusing the Federalist Society of political correctness because uh, all of yesterday I heard praise for the Scottish Enlightenment, for Montesquieu, uh, occasionally for Tuckfield, but very few references to the uh, English thinkers and English history that I think had a profound impact on the American experience. Uh, The English uh, pioneered a number of ways of subjecting uh, rulers to the idea that their power was conditional. one of which was, of course, the rather radical measure of cutting off the king's head in the 1640s. And then in the Glorious Revolution, which was uh, noted by one of the other speakers, they introduced the idea that you can shop around for a monarchy if you don't like the one that you've got. And there were times when I pointed this out to some of my friends who were perhaps a little critical of Prince Charles. Uh, uh, That seems to have settled down in more recent times, too. Uh, I want to just continue for a moment with uh, an autobiographical theme in two ways. The first is to say that when I started thinking about American exceptionalism, I was enormously influenced by the work of Louis Hartz. Uh, I think that his book, The Liberal Tradition in America, is just one of the most important books that appeared in the 20th century on American life, American political thought, and American Government And in that book, of course, he sets out very clearly the idea of American exceptionalism uh, as something that combines the faith in market forces, in individualism in that respect, with a tradition of respect for rights and for self-government, on the other hand. And to me, that idea of the liberal tradition is what is uh, at stake when we are talking about American exceptionalism. Now, Louis Hartz, as you probably know, is much less fashionable in the academy today than he was when I read that book or when perhaps when it was first published. Very distinguished people like Roger Smith at Yale University who would argue that uh, uh, patriarchy, racism, etc. are uh, fully part of the American political tradition, not just liberalism. Uh, my own view is that this country has been anchored by that liberal tradition. Like all countries, it's had its aberrations, but that liberal tradition has served as a bad uh, rock or as an anchor, which has p- always pulled it back to its better instincts. Second thing that I wanted to say of an autobiographical nature is that I started teaching American government overseas, in fact in Britain, and at that time in a university that had more than its fair share of very left-wing students, I had no trouble convincing uh, the students that America was exceptional, but not in the favourable sense that you think. Uh, they believed that America was a land where the sick dropped dead on the street for lack of medical attention, where gun battles were a daily feature of life at the shopping mall, and where life in general was uh, uh, red in tooth and claw with no regard for each other. And... Uh, Obviously, I did my best to correct that, but it was partly a reaction against that that attracted me to the notion of American exceptionalism. And uh, I uh, would first like to turn to the point that Hartz made about the uh, commitment of this country to belief in democracy and individual liberty and uh, and, uh, civil liberties in general. And here what I want to say is, let us rejoice in the fact that the United States has become less distinctive than it once was. And I just picked, uh, more or less at random, from uh, an internationally coordinated survey that exists, uh, responses to a number of questions. Um, Do you uh, support the right of people to uh, engage in public protest? Uh, do you believe that revolutionaries should be allowed to publish? Do you believe that the worst judicial mistake is that can be made is convicting an innocent person? And then a test of, if you like, individualism and individual conscience. In exceptional circumstances, is it right to break the law and follow your conscience? And what I'm sort of particularly intrigued by in this respect are those countries which 60, 70 years ago uh, we would have regarded as uh, very dubious uh, places where democracy was unlikely to take root. And I would say, look at them now. The reason it's West German figure, by the way, is this is a 1996 survey, and they, they, they did survey uh, East Germany, but they wanted to keep that separate. So supporting right to public protest in Germany, allowing revolutionaries to, to, to publish belief that the worst judicial mistake is convicting the innocent. What I see here is basically a tremendous commonality of values across the Atlantic and I think that given the sacrifices that have been noted by uh, Rudy Giuliani amongst others that previous generations made of, of, of defending democracy and spreading democracy in the occupations of Germany in particular I think we should take great joy in these figures and their suggestion that belief in democratic values and civil liberties is no longer something which is exceptional in the United States now moving on uh one of the things that has already been touched on is what do Americans expect of government? And you you know the joke, uh, the well-used joke about Harry Truman, uh, find me a one-armed economist. Well, I'm afraid you're always in that trouble with the social sciences. And what I want to suggest is that the American public is more in love with big government uh, than you would like, or perhaps has previously been suggested. Not all aspects of big government but many of them. And I don't say this to advocate big government. I say this simply to say to all of you that if you don't like this fact, you've got another 25 years of work ahead of you because there are plenty of areas where the American public has the belief that it is the responsibility of government to take care of these problems just as people do in other countries or more or less just as true in the case of health, okay, noticeably lower but still very high, taking care of the old, noticeably lower but still very high Um, a little bit lower, providing decent housing for, I'm sorry about the abbreviation there for those who can't afford it, and then the big drop off in providing decent uh, standard of living for the unemployed And to reduce income differences. So I don't want to tell you that the United States is exactly like Europe in terms of the belief patterns of of, of the American public. But I do want to suggest that there are many very expensive areas of uh, of government, of big government as uh, we would see it. Uh, that are very popular with the American public and I don't see any t- sign that is likely to change in the near future as I say, if you don't like that uh, that part of the table then you've got another 25 years of hard work ahead of you. Now, um, oops, I'm not really sure what's happened uh, on this uh, table, uh, but the, uh, what we see here is the uh, <coughs> figure that Shows the expenditures of uh, government in terms of uh, the uh, share of gross domestic product taken uh, accounted for by government expenditure. And again, you can see that there is a significant difference between the United States and all the other countries. Not such a huge difference compared with the United Kingdom, but obviously compared with with uh, Sweden and uh, compared with uh, France uh, and at the later date, again with the United Kingdom, it's a significant figure. And so it's very easy for a federalist society to take comfort from this and say that we are still uh, doing okay. But before you feel too comfortable about that, I want to just sort of point to a couple of other features of American public policy. One is that there is significant public expenditure in this country that is made not through direct government expenditure but indirectly through regulation and through tax expenditure and these are OECD figures and what they show is that the net mandated public expenditure is uh, the figure that you should be looking at and again in that figure yes there is a difference with the UK a very considerable difference with Sweden but it isn't like the United States is at zero and the European countries are at 100 Uh, the other point that I would make is that regulation as you all know because so many of you are involved in studying it or working on it is a very strong feature of public policy in the United States and there are some as I say some wildly differing expenditures of um, the uh, cost of regulation Uh, but I think that they generally point to the fact that that regulation is a very significant component of um, national income just to go back very quickly Ms. Cannon would say equal to 10% of gross domestic product and the uh, figures put out each year by the Office of Management and Budget, even in uh, the uh, last year under a administration, point to uh, very considerable expenditures uh, of resources, not of government money, but of resources through uh, government. So uh, these problems, I think, are likely to remain with us. This is another OECD graph showing the growth in real social expenditure in Europe compared with gross domestic product and in the United States. And so, as you probably all know, the tendency, the pressures are for government not to contract even in this country, but there are very real pressures for them to get greater. Does any of this matter? I think that uh, it matters in uh, two respects to me, at least. One is that I think that recognition that at least an important part of big government is popular and is unlikely to disappear in the near future might encourage us to think about the most effective way of running those programs if we cannot, if we, even if we would wish to, get rid of them in the very short term. The second is that I think that particularly going back to those figures on support for civil liberties and democratic values, we learn something which I think is well uh, noted or remembered at this particular time, given the international challenges. I was recently reading a book on Europe and America by the German academic uh, and sociologist, uh, to be more precise, Klaus Offer, and Klaus Offer talked about a Europe and America that are moving ever further apart. When I look at the situation, I'm more inclined to see a transatlantic community that is linked in many of its democratic values and is less different than people sometimes think in its attitude to the role of government. Thank you very much.
4: I have to wait for the mic. Oh, the mic's on. Well, this is the non-PowerPoint part of the presentation today. Um, those of you who love PowerPoint, you're about to get one more after me. Uh, I'm a little self-conscious, uh, uh, frankly, giving this talk this afternoon because I found that a good deal of what I had to say was preempted by the speech by Rudy Giuliani. And... It's a very uncomfortable position for an academic to be in, to be preempted by a politician uh, under any circumstances. So I had to, uh, but it was too late uh, since it just happened to change the remarks. So I'm afraid some of this you will have heard before. The subject of American uh, exceptionalism um, is, is, has been widely written about and it's extremely complicated. Um, if you wanna try to identify all the different factors or variables that might separate uh, Americans from other countries and other traditions Um, You could really spend a lot of time. We only have seven minutes allotted to us uh, each on this program. And so I thought I would do is I would start off by two quotes that I think summarize uh, in my view accurately uh, what at least just in a very brief way summarizes uh, what really makes American exceptional uh, America exceptional uh, and then add my own little twist. Uh, The first quote is from Steve Calabresi's wonderful article on American exceptionalism that that appears in the December 2006 issue of the Boston University Law Review. And here's what Steve says. American exceptionalism is thus absolutely exceptional among all the exceptionalisms of the world because of the belief that anyone of any race or nation can become an American just by believing in a set of ideas. Ours is a universal creed and is not predicated on a nationalist belief that we are superior because of who we are. Americans think America is superior because of what Americans believe. So what is it that Americans believe? For that, let me just use another summary quote. This is from a book by Seymour Martin Lipset um, called American Exceptionalism, A Double-Edged Sword. Here's what Lipset writes. Born out of revolution, the United States is a country organized around an ideology which includes a set of dogmas about the nature of a good society. Americanism, as different people have pointed out, is is an ism or ideology in the same way that communism or fascism or liberalism are isms. As G.K. Chesterton put it, America is the only nation in the world that is founded on a creed. Just heard that before. That creed is set forth with dogmatic and even theological lucidity in the declaration of independence. The American ideology can be described in five words, liberty, egalitarianism, individualism, populism, and laissez-faire. The revolutionary ideology which became the American creed is liberalism in its 18th and 19th century meanings as distinct from conservative Toryism, status communitarianism, mercantilism, and noblesse oblige, dominant and monarchical state church formed uh, cultures. So that I think uh, summarizes what you've already heard and what I think is pretty obviously true. What differentiates Americans from others is what we believe, not who we are. But I want to just focus now for the balance of my few minutes on one of the things that Americans believe. The one of the things that I think that the Federalist Society stands for, and I would be remiss if I didn't take this opportunity to congratulate the Federalist Society on their 25th anniversary, as all others have, and to note that when I was a law student, there was no Federalist Society, and it was a very lonely thing to be a libertarian law student in those days. But since I've been a law professor, there has been a Federalist Society, and as a result, it has not been a lonely thing to be a libertarian law professor. So I thank the Federalist Society for that. <laughs> The creed that I'm going to talk about, the aspect that I'm going to talk about, I think is a central creed of the Federalist Society, and it has, as I'm going to just parse it today, four parts. The first is a belief in a founding document, which is a written constitution. The novelty of a written constitution has now been widely imitated around the world, but not necessarily the ideology of faithful adherence to a document that not only empowers government, but that also limits it. Which brings me to the second tenet of this American constitutional creed. And that is the distinctive American belief in constitutionally limited government. A government with powers that are limited in a constitution, but not in one, but in two different ways. The first is by what we might call the federalist constitution that divides powers among the branches of the national government and also between the national government and the states. And the second, we might call the anti-federalist constitution that provides specific protections of enumerated rights in the form of a bill of rights along with the expressed protection of unenumerated rights, privileges, and immunities that are retained by the people. The fourth um, aspect of this American constitutional creed is that the legal, that, that, these li- that the fact that these limits on governmental powers are put in writing invites the legal enforcement of these limits by an independent judiciary, but not only by an independent judiciary, but also the invocation of these limits, as we saw this morning from Senator McConnell, by members of the Congress, by the executive branch and by state governments, as well as by the people themselves. Because these limits are placed in writing, we can litigate their limits, but we also can affirm them with other sources of governmental power or within other sources of the government. But now I wanna emphasize and conclude by emphasizing a fourth characteristic of the American constitutional creed um, as it has been defined in our two year, 200 year old history, uh, constitution. And I think this is one that sometimes gets lost. And that is, it's the anti-democratic nature of our Republican form of government that is defined by the Constitution, what my friend Sandy Levinson of the University of Texas has called in his new book, our undemocratic Constitution. In my view, if there is one constitutional uh, feature that has preserved the United States as an exception to the various ideological trends of the rest of the world, it is this. The written Constitution, our written Constitution, established a peculiar system of rule by institutions that were to be checked by popular forces but that popular forces themselves did not claim the right to rule directly. By design, the Constitution and state legislatures are not the people and those who seek to locate the people in Congress or legislatures, which I think some Federalists sometimes do, make a big mistake about the nature of American constitutionalism. Elements, um, elections serve as a popular check on governmental power and apart from state, but apart from state referenda, which itself serves as a check on legislative power, the people here do not rule directly because no one in government can claim to speak for the people, not the president, unlike various dictatorships or the Congress, unlike various parliamentary systems that dominate the rest of the world. The separation of people and state is what is protected by the Constitution, the separation of people and state. This separation, like the separation of church and state, provides the space for the rest of the American ideology of classical liberalism to survive. Whereas the rest of the world's democratic regimes are far more susceptible to capture by interests, but also by the ideological fashions of the day. In my view, the separation of people and state has served America well. Here the people do not purport to rule. Here the people are empowered to check those who do rule and never to completely identify with their rulers. Now to anticipate tomorrow's panel that our form of government substantially differs from those of other Western democracies is a very good reason why our constitution should not be interpreted to import the constitutional law of other countries. The sad thing is that when American intellectuals are called to advise other countries on democracy, they are self-conscious and embarrassed to promote the Republican form of government that has prevailed here, the Republican form of government that has made America exceptional. Instead, they largely bemoan the undemocratic nature of our system of governments and largely endorse European style parliamentary systems. For I think it's quite true that our intellectual class worships democracies in Europe and if I didn't think that was true before I joined the faculty of Georgetown, I certainly know it's true today. <laughs> so perhaps we owe a debt to those who would not do not agree that our peculiar combination of Federalist and anti federalist constitutions um, are the best for the perpetuation of American exceptionalism in the world, because it is, unfortunately, I think, for the rest of the world, what keeps us unique. Thank you.
5: Okay, let's have some uh, fun with numbers um, here. And it's uh, having been a former colleague of, of uh, Randy's and a good friend, it's always good to hear him again. Um, and um, I'd like to uh, uh, fir- first say that I'm happy to um, be speaking on a uh, diverse panel uh, at, the, uh, uh, at the at the organization that's more committed to intellectual diversity than any other organization. Um, in, the, uh, in the in the public sphere in America today, now the crowd isn't always as diverse, but the uh, panels are more diverse than any other organization that I, I that I that I have seen. And for someone who studies viewpoint diversity, that's uh, uh, that's a g- great thing to be happy about here. Okay, now um, uh, I'm going to uh, show you some uh, tables um, uh, on, and I'm looking at the issue of immigrants. Um, what uh, what do they believe? And let's see if we have a pointer here. Do we? Have a it doesn't. Okay. So um, this is general social survey data, um, which is uh, the, done at NORC uh, at Chicago. They have the highest response rates of any surveys around, um, about seventy percent response rate. Typical opinion poll gets about twenty percent. Um, uh, Pew data, with uh, which Bruce has used, um, uh, is it usually gets uh, much better than that, but still, uh, I've heard anyways in the range of around thirty percent. Uh, this is a question that looked at uh, whether both parents are born in the U.S. or one parent born in the U.S. or both parents foreign born. And this whether you were born in the U.S. or an immigrant. And one of the I'm only going to talk about a few issues that uh, are different or at least show you charts about them. And this one's on women's roles. This is one way where immigrants are different from uh, from uh, native born Americans and those who's, uh, who are uh, at least second or third generation Americans. Um, if uh, both parents are foreign born, you tend to think that women should, uh, men should work outside the home. Women should take care of the home. Um, and if you're uh, uh, born in the U.S., uh, you'd agree with that only 37% of the time. If you're um, uh, an immigrant, you'd agree with that 48% of the time. Uh, let's see here. Uh, similarly, um, uh, a belief that children suffer if mother works outside the home, uh, if uh, both parents are born in the U.S., um, you get uh, 41% believe that. Uh, both parents are foreign born, 55%. Um, immigrants versus U.S. born, again, 41% versus 58%. So that's pretty consistent traditional uh, views of women. You find the same things in questions on women in politics, for example. Um, uh, then there was a, se- a series of questions that have been asked about what's most important for a child to learn. Um, and this one's, um, uh, and among the five questions, uh, five answers that were possible, they were asked to rank, were to uh, teach the child to learn to think for, for oneself, for him or herself. And um, for, uh, when both parents are, um, are, uh, are born um, in the U.S., um, uh, there's a, the, um, uh, the, it's uh, 49%, um, uh, I'd say, uh, um, uh, uh, it's most of the, rated that number one, and um for foreign born only 34% and uh, born in the U.S. again 49% versus 32% so that's consistent. So what did they rank first? Well, um, the, if, you, if uh, you were born in the U.S. 19% of the time you li- uh, listed Im- most important for a child to learn to work hard um, while immigrants 26% were likely to do that. We see the same pattern here. For um, uh, for parents, uh, for both born in the U.S. 19%, both parents born born 26%. Now, most of the issues we looked at, there's some differences between Hispanic immigrants and non-Hispanic immigrants. This is one in which there was a big difference. Other immigrants, non-Hispanic immigrants, 30% said it was listed at first, um, and Hispanic immigrants only 18%. Um, But that may suggest that Hispanics are different than other immigrants, but they're more like Native-born Americans than, uh, than our other immigrants on this one. I'm not sure whether that's a positive or negative thing, but nonetheless, uh, they are. Um, and uh, one of the last things for, uh, for learning for becoming fully American is to be somewhat suspicious of immigrants, at least today. And so um, uh, when you've been completely assimilated, oops, excuse me, uh, when you've been completely assimilated... Um, uh, then um, uh, you, uh, uh, you're less likely to think that immigrants are good for America. Not surprisingly, um, uh, when uh, both parents are foreign-born or where you're an immigrant, uh, you're uh, very likely to think that immigrants are good for America. Um, I, it's interesting to – one of the reasons for raising these questions is that, is that when we think of American exceptionalism, we uh, sometimes assume that because immigrants to some extent bring their own culture, that they're characteristic of the cultures in those other countries – and as people were talking, I'm an inveterate runner of numbers. I was running numbers on some of the uh, issues that they were raising um, uh, to, to, to look at it. And, for example, um, uh, on, on religiosity, for example, the question, do, um, uh, do you, do your view on God and, and those who gave the, the strongest view, which was no God exists. Um, uh, immigrants, 67% said no, they know God exists. Well, only 62% of, uh, of um, uh, non-immigrants. So it was even higher among immigrants. But when you broke it down, it was 77% for, um, for Hispanic immigrants and 57% for non-Hispanic immigrants. So there wasn't a big difference uh, between non-Hispanic immigrants and native-born Americans, though there were some, and it was in the direction that Bruce's work would suggest. But, but overall, immigrants, when you take into account Hispanic immigrants, are actually more religious. Uh, Questions about a life meaningful because God exists, uh, virtually the same answers between immigrants and non-immigrants. Prayer in schools, um, there are some differences. Um, uh, U.S. uh, born uh, 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 respondents are moderately more likely to support prayer in the schools. Uh, Views on whether whether gay sex is always wrong, Um, uh, those numbers are virtually identical between immigrants and non-immigrants. So some of the um, differences that were uh, noted by Bruce are very much true, but um, they don't necessarily apply to immigrants and you need to look at it a little bit more carefully if you're going to use it to generalize in that way, which of course Bruce did not. Um, I'd like to echo some of the comments about other exceptionalisms and um, one of them that Ron mentioned was uh, Texas versus Maine. And I I guess I'm throwing out ideas for future conferences or uh, books or seminars or whatever, but one is to do something on Northeastern exceptionalism. Those of us who are... (laughs) Those of us who are who are those of us who are social scientists uh, uh, tend to uh, always learn. You have to take account of Southern exceptionalism. You have to make sure that you've looked to see how this whether you're just uh, conflating something for the South. Um, Well when I've looked at data I find that Northeastern exceptionalism is almost as strong and in some areas stronger than Southern exceptionalism and I think it has almost more influence on our life and it would be interesting to uh, study that another kind of exceptionalism, and one that I study a lot, is uh, liberal, conservative, uh, Republican, Democratic, and not looking at data can get you into trouble on this. And uh, we had an example just this week. I was going to plant somebody in the audience to ask me a question about this, but uh, my friends who are Hillary Clinton supporters, I, I didn't see any in the audience, so I didn't wasn't able to rope anyone who would who would uh, who would plant a question for me. But um, the um, uh, I, one, of the, one of the issues that came up this week was a statement which, um, which uh, Howard Dean, who's the head of the Democratic Party, made, which is there are fundamental differences between the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party believes that everybody in this room ought to be comfortable, um, uh, being an American Jew, not just an American, and there are no bars to heaven for anybody. This was a statement made to a, uh, a Jewish group. Um, Unfortunately, the data don't support him very well. It depends a bit on how you slice things, um, but uh, if you look at um, whether um, Democrats or Republicans think that Jews uh, can go to heaven, uh, it turns out that Democrats are less likely to think that Jews can go to heaven. <laughs> but the group that the group that they're that's more likely that they that they're more likely to think it uh, can go to heaven is Muslims. So uh, one, one would suggest that perhaps if, if he had actually disclosed the position of rank and file Democrats to the Jewish group that he was, um, that he was speaking to, they would not necessarily have found it as congenial as, as his remarks were intended to be. Um, and, and it does suggest why you need to look at the data. Uh, uh, often when you uh, read the news um, or watch the news, you get an impression of what's going on in the world that's at odds with what happens when people are um, are, are asked about it or ask their own opinions in private, they often differ quite substantially. Thank you.
0: Well, thanks to all our panel members, uh, we we have a lot of different views expressed. Oh, by the way, Jim on the the question of, of, can Jews go to heaven? Some people thought the question was, should they go now? So you have to, you have to really disaggregate the data very carefully. Um, I don't say that only because I'm Jewish and we always feel picked upon. I also say that because I'm a Republican who used to live in Massachusetts and we always feel picked upon. <laughs> uh, if, if you have questions, please line up at one of the microphones and say who you are and what your question is. Um, I did want to say I I noticed that uh, there was a reference by Graham to Harry Truman and I I thought the quote you were going with, it was, uh, Harry was out in the backyard at one point and uh, said very loudly, uh, we need more manure for the plants. And his daughter, Bess, ran out and said, Dad, please don't say manure, say fertilizer. At which point, uh, excuse me, Margaret, the the daughter, went out and said that. The mother, Bess, immediately said, Margaret. Shut up. It's taken me 20 years to get him to say manure.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> you have the, the
1: first question.
0: Is, uh, does this mic need to warm up too? I, oh, here we go. Uh, you have to have optimism that the microphones will work.
6: <laughs>
4: uh, Chris Chapak, like American University. Uh, I have a question for Mr. Wilson and Mr. Stokes. Uh, some of the data on your presentation between the U.S. and Britain tracked more, uh, for them being more alike, and some of it tracked for them being very divergent. Mm -hmm. Do you think, or do you have an opinion about um, American exceptionalism may be a subset of a greater Anglo-American exceptionalism? And do you have any data from Australia or Canada that might support or or not support that?
5: Mm -hmm.
2: Well, some of our data on Canada suggests uh, on a number of these issues. I didn't put Canada on there just for space reasons. That that we looked a lot like the Canadians in terms of optimism uh, in some individualism issues. Um, clearly not on some of the social welfare, social policy issues. Uh, they looked more like uh, Europeans in that in that Northern Europeans in that regard. Um, you're right about the the similarity, and and I noticed that there were some differences. in, I mean, let's face it, polling is not science; it's art. You know? So one has to bear that in mind that this is not going to be uh, perfect um, but uh, what I found interesting is, is areas sometimes you do find where there's real similarity with our views with the Brits and then there's some, there's just some dissimilarity and I, I guess uh, what has struck me most is, is the decline in support for the United States in Britain over the last few years I mean uh, if, if this is what our uh, uh, strongest ally uh, believes and thinks about us, then we're in real trouble uh, because that there's some of the sharpest fall-off uh, since 2002 in support for the United States has been in
3: Britain. Uh, I think that, in general, the British float somewhere between uh, the United States and Europe, but I think as geographically they are, in many respects, more like the rest of Europe than, uh, where there is a difference with the United States uh, what I would seize on in the table that I put up earlier is the one about reducing income differences where about 68% of the British think that's a good thing for, British, for government to do 75% of the Italians 73% of the Europeans but only 48% of the Americans so that's one area where I would see a clear British-American uh, uh, difference Uh, I think that the point that I would perhaps wish that I'd rammed home when I put that table up before is that the aspects that Americans like about big government Maybe be in some respects limited but in budgetary terms they're huge uh, looking after to, if you think that government is responsible for health care or in care for the old uh, and even uh, to a large degree decent housing for those who can't afford it then you've run up some pretty big budgetary numbers in, in that regard in this country
2: and, and i like to reiterate Graham's point that if you look at the OECD data and the OECD tried to not just look at budgetary expenses but tax incentives we give for things that other countries just have the government pay for uh, our differences say with the Scandinavians are not that great in terms of how much money we spend so it really does get down to a question of uh, we may want to stop having a fight about whether we spend the money, or we've been spending the money and the question should be are we spending it effectively, are we spending it uh, in the most efficient manner and effective manner. Thank you.
6: I'm Brian Bishop and uh, interloper from uh, Rhode Island. And uh, it, it struck me as perhaps a difficult uh, a question to bring in because the statistics were comparing attitudes about maybe the exceptional nature of our cultures or, or, or our regard for those. But most of the statistics didn't seem to go to the question of how we felt about other cultures or the, the possible export of American values in the sense that whether through the shining city on the hill or through a, a more aggressive engagement with spreading democracy uh, that, uh, that American exceptionalism could then be seen as different uh, from other uh, Western democracies. And, and I'm wondering if, uh, if, there, if, there, if actually if you kind of have data or questions that that look at the perception of America's place in the world from within America and and from without, where I think that you know perhaps those differences uh, are going to be far more extreme than uh, than some of the data even on the role of government that you presented about on domestic issues.
2: Well, uh, we we do have some data that more addresses some of those points. Um, uh, one stream of data that's that's discouraging is. I think we don't perceive ourselves the way others perceive us. I mean, one of the questions we ask is uh, people around the world and the people in the U.S. is, do you think the United States takes into consideration your interests when it makes foreign policy? Uh, almost nobody in the world believes that, and that's a sign of their sense of our unilateralism. We actually believe we take into consideration other people's concerns when we make our foreign policy. There's a huge gulf there in terms of perception. Um, we uh, do support the spread of democracy, although some data I've seen that hasn't been released yet suggests that's declining. Uh, whereas uh, we actually support the spread of democracy less than the Europeans do. Now, I think it gets into how you spread it and what do you mean by that. But the Europeans actually are, are, are stronger supporters of the spread of democracy, even than Americans. And. Um, And uh, what was probably most discouraging about some of the uh, Pew data that came out just recently, um, uh, people around the world don't trust us, uh, trust our spread of democracy. Uh, They believe that it is self-interested, that it's not really about the spread of democracy. It's about the pursuit of American self-interest, economic and foreign policy self-interest. So we have a huge hurdle to overcome, it seems to me. Uh, when we try to promote democracy in the sense that that people are very
3: cynical about it. Perhaps I could just make two very quick comments. One is that I think that the American role and the tradition of thinking about our foreign policy is much more varied than saying it's our job to get out there and spread democracy. Often, to put it, the opposite extreme has been a tradition that our job is to make the best possible democracy here at home and inspire admiration, and that's the best way we can serve democracy and I'm not getting into a, an argument saying that that's the, the more appropriate foreign policy I'm just noting that that was and has been historically an important tradition in this country um, we all keep qu- quoting Winthrop, Winthrop uh, matters to me he was uh, uh, lord of the manor at Groton which was quite close to where I used to live in England in the 1970s so I, I like to make sure that he's, he's quoted accurately and of course what Winthrop was saying was something which, which was very sobering not that We've got it right, but if we don't get it right, we're going to get zapped, and uh, God will punish us. Uh, so it's, it's not a congratulatory. It's a very uh, sobering uh, sermon.
5: Um, I, I just wanted to, to jump in. Uh, um, I, I don't have the comparative data in front of me, but um, asked uh, whether America's a better country than others um, uh, in the 2000-2006 General Social Surveys. Uh, 40% strongly agree, 39% agree. So um, uh, it's pretty much about 80%. Um, uh, and disagree, um, uh, 5.2%, and then other kinds of answers for the rest of it.
2: And we also asked a question about, do, do you think America is a blessed country? And uh, overwhelmingly, Americans believed that. What was interesting, though, is we also believed that other countries were blessed. We didn't con- We didn't consider ourselves to be the only... Uh, a blessed country
6: were those was that eighty percent when you added strong and it, was that American attitudes American about ourselves attitudes. yeah okay.
0: in in looking at uh, in, in looking at some of these data uh, and let me ask Bruce this particularly when you when you talk about attitudes of others abroad about America and cynicism about Uh, what we're doing in foreign policy. Uh, How much of this is really a a sort of durable response and how much do you think Mm -hmm. is really a a shorthand for I disagree with this today now and and how much should we take away from survey responses? I I asked this question to someone who spends a lot of time abroad. We have our caricatures of other countries. I've always found people in France no matter what the caricature is at the moment in the U.S., very friendly, uh, very enthusiastic, um, and although not everyone is uh, as friendly and enthusiastic about America as some of the people attending this conference from France, uh, the French have been very quick to adopt a lot of things American, uh, so actions may differ a bit from the, the responses I just
2: well, certainly our, 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 uh, our data showed that um, – I mean, I, I conclude we were the first to find this, but it's been repeated by a lot of other people and certainly repeated in our surveys. It was widespread America, anti-Americanism, and it's continuing to grow. I mean, every year we do the survey, we think we must have hit the bottom last year. It can't get any worse than this, and then it gets worse. Uh, but you're right, Ron, that when you ask people what is it uh, about America they don't like, um, and for management of the question reasons, you don't give an open-ended response. Uh, basically, it's Bush. It is the Iraq War, um, but disturbingly, people also say, "What of the options?" Was no, it, it's 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 also America. You know, I, I don't like Bush, but it's also America I don't like. And initially, it was overwhelmingly Bush, and and. To a small extent, America. The percentage of people who say no, it's America also that I don't like, keeps going up. And historically, when we going back to the the Vietnam War era, uh, people tended to like Americans more than they liked America. And um, and that would get to your point that it's really policy, and that will change. But they like us fundamentally. And overwhelmingly, people still like Americans. But the percentage of people who say they like Americans is also going down. So it does seem to me that while there'll be a honeymoon, whoever becomes president, uh, uh, because it's it's anybody but Bush, uh, it does seem to me that that honeymoon will be fairly short, uh, in part because some of these underlying policies are not going to really change no matter who's president. And uh, also, uh, there there is this broader issue of, of frustration with America, not just Americans. Uh, we asked people after the 2004 election, do you think less of the United States now because they reelected George Bush? And they said yes. You think less of Americans, I think it was, if, 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 if because they reelected George Bush. Yes, that was, so that's contributed to it. And I think that we have to realize that uh, it's going to be slow slogan to get ourselves out of this hole we 're in with with attitudes from from the rest of the world
5: I, I very briefly wanted to to respond to the methodological point you raised, which is how good our surveys in a way and um, Uh, You know, there's problems with non-response, bias, question framing, and all of these things are well known. What you hope to do is get get at uh, issues from enough different ways and enough different surveys. And so there's a whole range of issues about women's roles or whatever. And so, for example, the kind of question that I distrusted because of question framing was the one about separation of church and state. It's one of the reasons why I mentioned prayer. Um, because that's a more meaningful. It's like asking whether people are in favor of free speech, but then saying should a should a racist be allowed to speak in your community? And a lot of them will say a lot of people will say yes, they believe in free speech, but no for a particular speech that they disapprove of. And I think the uh, the same thing with separation of church and state. It's kind of abstract. It's better to ask them about things that might violate it. And this comes up particularly in abortion uh, polling. Where the majority, um, uh, if you ask them, do they want Roe versus Wade overruled, uh, it's pretty overwhelming they do not. But then, and, and, and abortion support for certain kinds of abortion, like uh, for, for if the child a, has a, a defect um, in uh, uh, a prenatal diagnosis, they strongly support abortion in that situation, for example, in addition to rape and so forth. But if you say if someone just has too many children, they don't want any more. Um, they don't. About only forty percent support abortion in that situation. So when you actually give the facts that would give rise to, to uh, support under Roe, they a majority don't support Roe. Um, uh, even though they do support, uh, even though when asked about Roe, they don't want it overruled.
2: I mean that's why I said I, that I think that it's it's an art not a science because for example, and one of one of the things I do is a lot of uh, polling data on trade. If you ask Americans if they believe in free trade, they've all drunk the Kool-Aid. Three fifths of them say yes, I believe in trade in theory. But if you ask them, you know, should we have higher tariffs on steel to protect steelworker jobs? About three fifths of them say they'd they'd do that. You know, people hold these contradictory views, and a lot of it depends on how specific the question is.
0: Yes,
7: Mark Scarberry, Pepperdine Law School. Uh, I'm wondering, outside of Britain, uh, do Europeans see us as being exceptional, perhaps? in in uh, being unnuanced or perhaps somewhat primitive in our political views, that we're willing to divide into two parties and have a two-party system, um, and perhaps this relates to Randy's point. Um, what's the relationship between exceptionalism in our form of government and that two-party system? Are we exceptional in being willing to divide into two parties? Uh, or do we divide into two parties because of our exceptional Constitution? And, and perhaps this plays some into the question, how exportable is our Constitution, perhaps to people who don't want to divide in that way or would not divide in that way?
4: Um, Well, I do think the two-party system as it has developed, not actually in the original Constitution, but as it developed uh, in the Jacksonian period, where the Jefferson and then originally the the Jacksonian period, does separate us from parliamentary systems that have multi-party systems. Um, And I think that is an advantage that Americans have. I don't think it's because we have a different take on ideology I think that the, the idea is, is that we form uh, political parties that are coalition parties, and then the position of the party is dictated by the coalition, um, rather than forming coalition governments f- uh, from amongst minority parties within a parliamentary system. And I, that does lead to more middle-of-the-road policies and less, ex- and less pandering to extremism, Uh, in the United States, just because to get past 51% in a party, you have to appeal to the middle, as opposed to individual parties in a parliamentary system that have to appeal only to their particular constituents, and then somehow down the road, you have to form a majority. So, my answer would be, I think it's our structure of government as it has evolved, not even in the original constitution, um, that is in part responsible for this exceptionalism, not something that starts with us.
3: I think that the coalition system of government provides for a lot of checking of, of power. Uh, in fact, I think that there can be circumstances in which it produces too much checking of, of, of power. Uh, I think that one of the reasons why uh, the uh, Germans, for example, had so much trouble achieving economic reform was because you cannot have a government in, in Germany unless it is a coalition government, the advocates of coalition government point to a lot of stability you get in policy because it's so damn difficult to change <laughs> anything. But uh, I think that one of the uh, points that comes out of this very interesting question is that political systems uh, achieve a certain fragmentation of power in different ways, some institutional, some through party systems. But there are relatively few long-lasting democracies that have embraced uh, a very strong, unchecked concentration of power.
0: We have a, a question at the back microphone. It, it'll be on in, in a moment. I'll just shout.
8: Uh, Gary Lawson, Boston University, the, the question is really inspired uh, by Jim Lindgren, but, but any panelist can handle it. As I'm sitting here, I'm thinking that we're really comparing aggregate data for the United States and for other countries where the plausibility of aggregation may not be the same across the comparisons. I mean, it's inspired by, by Jim Lindgren's comment about Northeastern exceptionalism. I'd frame it a little differently. You've got you know urban liberals and, and decent folk, but I mean, <laughs> the, the question, <laughs> you can get the same aggregate data with widely different variances. So I think it would be interesting to know whether the variance in the, in, the, in, the, in the responses by region, by any other division that you could find is likely to be greater in the United States than in other countries. Because if we've got more variance over here, similarities in aggregation don't actually tell you the full story. I mean, I don't know if that's coherent, but Jim, do you have any handle on that?
5: Uh-huh. Well, I I think that uh, in the United States, there there obviously are big differences in viewpoint. And I have studied a bit on which are the sort of most important cleavages. Um, And, um, uh, you know, gender is much less important than we tend to give it uh, weight to, partly because... The gender gap is primarily one among highly educated people, and so in the social class that's mostly represented in this audience, there is a gender gap. There's not as strong a one at most most other educational levels. Um, uh, uh, political orientation is a very important um, uh, difference. Uh, race, uh, black-white race differences, as a very important difference um, in terms of in the aggregate. Uh, I, I, d- I haven't studied uh, foreign I have done some work on uh, uh, cross national stuff. I haven 't looked enough about uh, elites in other countries. I have looked at liberal democratic uh, or left right party uh, patterns in other countries. and I know that the educa- uh, conservatives tend to be uh, better educated than average uh, than the average citizen in the United States. Liberals are as well, but they are um, uh, it's moderates who are the least well educated. But um, in other countries, most other countries that do not have this pattern. um, uh, Where liberals differ, uh, since you you seem interested in that, liberals differ is they they make a lot less money. They're less successful. Um, uh, And when you you look at information where you ask them, well, maybe they just aren't as interested in making money, when you ask them to rate what's important in a job, they actually rate um, making money higher than... uh, than conservatives do. Uh, but but nonetheless, the educational uh, difference for right wing or, or conservatives, the United States is not mirrored uh, in most European countries. And in Canada, it's actually reversed. And so uh, a lot of liberal conservative differences are very hard to generalize outside the United States.
2: I mean, cer- certainly our experience was y- y- it's very hard to find gender differences. Uh, be- within or between countries. I, I totally agree with that. You're always looking for it because it would be a great storyline and it just doesn't tend to, to emerge. Um, we uh, looked mightily for uh, age differences on the anti-Americanism uh, questions uh, to see if younger people were, were more critical of America than older people because the implicit uh conclusion there would be that, you know, if you alienate people at a young age, that we'll have to deal with them for the rest of our lives, or the rest of their lives. Uh, in fact, there isn't much of a difference there at all, at least in Europe. Um, on some of the questions that I threw up there, I could have put up some uh, tables and didn't. Uh, we did look at, uh, for example, age differences uh, around the question of separation of church and state or homosexuality problem is you get, the, you get the answers that you expect. You know, younger people are more accepting of homosexuality in Europe and in the United States than older people. Uh, yeah, older people um, have different views about religion, than younger people are probably more doctrinaire about it. I mean, so it's, it's, it's sometimes you get differences, but they aren't terribly interesting stories to tell. They're kind of what you'd expect.
3: There are obviously uh, regional differences within European countries. For example, the Scots are to the left of the English on most... Uh, uh, socioeconomic economic questions. Um, I think it's also an interesting feature, though, of Europe that what used to be almost the, the church, political churches, have withered away. I, I remember one of my first visits to Paris seeing a Communist Party demonstration and in its heyday the Communist Party was an all-encompassing church. You, know, you could play soccer in a Communist team, you could send your kids to a Communist uh, uh, day camp, you could go to communist socials, and and that uh, sort of aspect of European society I would say, uh, personally, thank God has disappeared.
1: (laughs) Uh, Yes, I'm Roger Pilon with the Cato Institute. Uh, I was struck by the uh, chart that showed that uh, nearly half of all Americans believe that government should be in the business of equalizing income, Mm -hmm. which the panelists took to be a mark of uh, the exceptionalism of America as contrasted with the European countries. Um, And I contrast that with the points that Randy made about exceptionalism being rooted in our founding documents uh, and the separation of people and government, which I take to be an accurate picture of our founding documents. And the contrast suggested to me that... um, the American people really don't understand their system of government if they believe that the purpose of government, half of them believe that it is to equalize income. And so I'm wondering how long American exceptionalism uh, may last under this uh, dissonance. Someone may wish to comment on that.
3: I I would just like to say very quickly that the... uh, Differences between the United States and Western Europe today, <coughs> excuse me, are as nothing compared with the differences that of the United between the United States of today and, should we say, 1900. And I, I, I think that that perspective of uh, trying to make comparisons over uh, time in American history, as well as between one country and another, is a very valid exercise.
4: Yeah, I've been trying to figure out a way to make this point without sounding flippant about it, um, but. I go to you know, I, I teach in Europe every summer, I speak with European students all the time. There is a market difference in attitudes I find from uh, uh, Eastern European countries than there is uh, students from Western European countries, but there 's somewhat i mean the sort of attitude I, I get is sort of like the anecdotal a- evidence that Graham was talking about when he first started teaching this in England, and that is that uh, Europe- many Europeans think they're exceptional. They think they're morally superior to Americans. They think Americans are cowboys and Americans are, are, are simplistic and Americans see the world in black and white and all this sort of thing. And uh, I, you know, I, I hate to disabuse them of this when I go over there, uh, but I basically say there's not really no position that I've ever heard a Western European advocate that I haven't heard here in the United States. Uh, but it's being advocated by one of the two political parties that we have over here. Uh, I don't think the Europeans political approach is any more sophisticated uh, than the Democratic Party's approach to various uh, item uh, public policy matters are here. Um, And therefore it doesn't surprise me that when you have a a long um, period of Republican uh, rule or Republican administrations that Europeans who have this attitude are going to look uh, worse upon America and then when a wonderful president like Bill Clinton becomes the president, Europeans are going to be much more Western Europeans with this attitude of European exceptionalism um, are going to have a much more favorable attitude. Uh, I think this speaks as much for European attitudes as it does for American attitudes.
0: I think we have time to get uh, one more question in.
4: Thank you. Uh, my name is
6: Christian Sandberg. I'm, I'm actually a, a Danish lawyer, I work at the Ministry of Justice in, in Denmark, but I'm, I'm here doing an LLM at the uh, University of Pennsylvania. And I, I just wanted to offer maybe a ray of hope uh, to explain some of these numbers, because I've just the thing I'm thinking about is how many of these people you are asking in these surveys about America, uh, how they view America, have actually been here, and like I've experienced so many times in in Europe that there's people say, oh, America does this and this and this. I'm never going there. I'm not visiting them. <laughs> and then you're like, well, that's just only going to make it even worse. So where are they getting their information from? Well, from the media. And if you think you have a problem with liberal, liberal media over here, <laughs> try reading a Danish newspaper. Oh, no, you can't, but you should try.
2: <laughs> uh, to tell a story on ourselves at the National Journal, and it, it, to, directly to your last point, we just published a picture the other day on a story I wrote about Sweden. And the Swedish embassy pointed out to me that even though the picture was of a store owned by a Swedish company, we'd actually published a picture of a Norwegian store because all the signs were Norwegian. And, of course, we didn't know the difference. (laughs) But but you're right. The Pew surveys show that uh, if you have been to America or if you have some kind of we ask questions about being in America or regular communication with people in America, you tend to be less anti-American. I mean, that's absolutely uh, so there. Uh, familiar, familiarity does not breed contempt.
3: And the British uh, are coming here by the thousands saying, it's so cheap. <laughs> 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 and, and, we, and we
0: welcome you here. Uh, let me thank the panel uh, for a, a well-done job. We uh, have been asked to clear the hole so that it can be swept before uh, Chief Justice Roberts speaks. You have to go back toward registration, past the uh, tables set up out there, and then they will let you back in in a few moments. Thank you.